0: Still trying to cover from the dirt nap thing, so a little bit of mental reset needed there. Okay, we are moving through the book of Genesis, just looking at the first 11 chapters, that's this series, because in these 11 chapters, we sort of get the part A story of the Bible, the background story that gives the context for why the rest of Genesis and the rest of the entire biblical story is critical to every single human being. This morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and I'm going to invite Lucas Drieger up to read that section of Scripture for us. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, that they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, of renown. If you were compiling a top five list of the Venn diagram overlap between controversial and just super weird stories in the Bible, this would definitely be top five. This passage is mysterious. It is cryptic. It is heavily contested, and to this day, there really isn't an established Christian interpretation. There's kind of three major theories that continually in different ages seem to have for attention. And part of what makes this passage so challenging is that it gives just enough information to sound very strange and allow for a lot of speculation, but not enough that you can really bring it into clarity. And so there's a lot of theories on these verses, and every year there's actually uh, many, not necessarily new books written, but lots of books are consumed around the mystery around Genesis 6 and the the giants and the Nephilim and the sons of God, and what does this all mean, and are they connected to, how are they connected to the biblical story and to human civilization and to our lives today? And... Many of these books arrive at very fantastic conclusions, and I'm not necessarily saying fantastic in the sense of excellent, but more fantastical. And I understand that because, again, you're, you're working with a um, what seems to me very little information in the text, which allows you to extrapolate and to do a lot of guesswork and to make some connections. And, and so these um, theories can kind of pull information from all over and arrive at some pretty strange conclusions, right? You've got the Nephilim and the mysteries surrounding them. They get dragged into everything from UFO conspiracies to literal giants that were purported perhaps to even be involved in the creation of the pyramids. Um, end times speculation. How are the nephilim going to rise? And they're part of a whole end times timeline. Other wonders of the world are dragged into this. Uh, mythology from ancient cultures is pulled uh, uh, pulled into the to the story. So you can go down some very, very weird rabbit holes when it comes to Genesis six one to four. So what I wanted to do this morning is just cover, fairly briefly, because each of these can be a bit of a deep dive, the three predominant theories or ways of reading and interpreting this text and to kind of explain where the theories come from and we'll then cycle back through them and establish where maybe the weak points with each theory. Because again, it's not like there's been three dominant theories, but one has really risen to the fore. But I I will share which one I think is... uh, does the most justice to the text. So, theory number one, that when this passage starts by talking about the sons of God and contrasting it to the daughters of men, the sons of God were people from the line of Seth, right? Seth is, in a sense, on one level, the replacement son after Abel is killed by Cain. Seth is born to Eve, and then we see Seth's line of descendants versus Cain. And so this theory says the sons of God were the righteous people from Seth's line and the daughters of men were the unrighteous descendants from the line of Cain. And actually, up until around 1500, well, maybe, yeah, right up until about the Reformation, this was the dominant Christian view So this is sometimes called the Sethites view, the descendants of Seth. And it kind of is tied to the idea that, well, sometimes when God's people or a particular um, subgroup of God's people are acting in obedience to to God, God does refer to them as sons, as in Deuteronomy 14.1. And so this theory says that really what we're seeing in Genesis 6 is a spiritual distinction between two people groups. One righteous people group, one righteous lineage, and one unrighteous one. And um, the problem that gets that the text is pointing us to, because right after the story is the God's heart being aggrieved, and then we get Noah and the flood. So the reason why the flood happens is because the righteous line of Seth intermarries and interbreeds with the unrighteous line. So you get this kind of pollution of a righteous bloodline with an unrighteous bloodline. So that's view number one. We'll circle back and look at why that might be a sketchy interpretation. But that's one view. Pretty actually dominant Christian view for almost 1,500 years. The second view are that the sons of God referred to here are angelic beings. And what is being contrasted isn't a spiritual distinction between two types of human beings, but an actual material distinction between heavenly beings, the sons of God, and earthly beings, the daughters of men. And in this view, it seems to indicate that there are these angelic beings who take for themselves wives, uh, multiply in kind of this unholy alliance between Um, kinds of beings which weren't supposed to uh, procreate and they have these offspring called the Nephilim. So there's this transgression of a boundary and that's what leads to the flood that angels and humans were not meant to copulate and they do and so this is both a human and a angelic or supernatural transgressions of the way of God's creation so he has to send a flood to kind of uh, even it out. And the strength for this view comes from the fact that although the phrase in Hebrew, sons of God, plural, not son of God, like we would refer to Jesus, but sons of God only occur four times in the Old Testament. Here is one. The other three are in Job. In the early chap- or no, sorry, two are in the early chapters of Job. One is in Job 38. And in those um, references, sons of God clearly refer to angelic beings. In Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Job 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Job 38.7, uh, God is questioning Job, and he says, were you there when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So biblical scholars say, well, the majority use of this particular Hebrew term that we translate sons of God in Job clearly refer, refer sorry, refer to some kind of angelic council or beings. So we should just read that back into Genesis 6 and say angels in some kind of uh, um, anti-creation movement didn't actually respect the boundaries that they were ascribed and mated with people. And that idea also gets overlaid into Jude verse 6 and Second Peter 2, 4 and 5, because each of these passages have these cryptic references to angels who didn't kind of respect their domain and left their approved domain and committed sin. And in Second Peter, Peter says that, that those angels have been cast into hell and are being held in dark dungeons and then he immediately goes on to talk about God's judgment through Noah and the flood and so Peter kind of says these angels who did something really really bad and then Noah's flood that actually lines up with what we see in Genesis chapter 6 1 to 4 angels doing something really really bad then Noah and the flood story So there seems to be this overlap that you can kind of see these patterns connecting. The third view is definitely the minority view and it is that sons of God here refer to ancient rulers or ancient kings that would have existed in the ancient Near East at the time of the writing. Now the Direct biblical evidence in terms of uh, lexical evidence, meaning particular words, is is a little bit uh, thinner here. Although there are instances, there are very few, but there are instances in scriptures where human rulers or human leaders are actually referred to as Elohim. And if you know anything about Hebrew word studies or if you've been in the church a long time, you probably know that Elohim is one of the names for God. It, it, it means the, the Almighty One. And sometimes, as in the case of Psalm 82, when God is calling human leaders and judges to task, Israelite judges, he says, didn't I say to you that you are all gods, and yet you failed to install justice in the earth? Now, God isn't saying you're divine, but he's using that as a way to say, you have a special responsibility as a leader and a ruler to reflect my character to the people. And yet you let injustice just roll out like it's nothing and you abuse and exploit people. So God is using that to chastise, not angelic beings, but human rulers. In Exodus 7.1, God says to Moses, I will make you like a god before Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And the word that he uses there is Elohim. I will make you like an Elohim. So there are these examples where God kind of gives a lo- um, extends this loaded term to a leader, not saying, "Oh, you're divine like me," or you're, "There's like two gods. There's only one God." But he uses it as kind of an honorary title to freight it with deep significance. And so, what's thought in this view? is that what's being referred to here are leaders who either were supposed to be sons of God in the sense that they should have reflected God's goodness, or they were leaders who in a pagan context said, do you know why I'm king? Do you know why I'm a leader? Because I'm like an incarnation of one of the gods that you worship. And so the passage is maybe using it as a tongue-in-cheek way to say, oh, these sons of God so they call themselves kind of thing. And because ancient Hebrew doesn't have some of those punctuations, we don't know exactly, but this view would say this is actually calling out not a spiritual distinction, like the certain types of humans mating with another type of a lower spiritual human humanity, nor spiritual being with fallen humanity, but this is actually an indictment of those with tremendous power using and exploiting that, that power in ways that were destructive across the social network. So let's look at the problems with each view because there are some serious ones. Problems with the Seth Kane bloodlines view. Well, as one, I think, well, several, actually, really solid evangelical scholars admit, the problem with this view is that it relies almost completely on conjecture, meaning there's actually no biblical evidence. It's just kind of an inherited view that people didn't really know what to do with the text. And so they kind of said, well, there's kind of these descendant lines occurring in the previous chapters. So maybe the sons of God goes over here and the daughters of men go over here, but there's no exegetical or lexical reason why you would connect that. And even if you were gonna say, if, if they're meant to refer to the righteous line of one person's Person versus the unrighteous line of the other, why wouldn't the Bible just say that? Seth's descendants, Cain's descendants, then they begin to intermarry. That's a big no-no. It also kind of brings in this idea that like there are actual righteous bloodlines, which, spoiler alert, if you read the rest of the Bible, one of its major points is that no matter who you are, what tribe, nation, tongue, bloodline you're a part of, race, ethnicity, we are all following in the path of Adam. We are all unrighteous, and we're in need of Jesus' blood. There is no secret bloodline that can be purified through the obedience of an ancestor, right? That's kind of, I hope we're tracking with that. So this view uh, not only doesn't have a lot of evidence from within Genesis, it actually doesn't make sense in terms of the larger biblical story. So I feel very confident completely dismissing it as a valid one. The next two are sort of in competition with each other, especially uh, recently. This second view, the angel's view, has been popularized by a a really brilliant biblical scholar named Michael Heiser. He's written a series of books. His most famous one is called The Unseen Realm, where he does a deep dive into the nature of the unseen realm and tying Genesis 6 into all these um, teachings about uh, angeology and demonology. It's a fascinating book. And he has really catapulted this view that, no, we're actually hearing a story about supernatural beings mating with humans and having that lead to all kinds of unintended destructive consequences, which a flood has to um, solve. He's been very responsible for um, foregrounding that theory uh, lately. But I think there are are at least five reasons why uh, I can't quite get there with this theory. The first is that granting the premise that these are supernatural beings mating with humans, cohabitation between angels and humans doesn't serve any obvious connection to the immediate context of Genesis. From Genesis 3, uh, well, Genesis 2 onwards, we go from Genesis 1, God creating everything, the universe, and now in Genesis 2, things really begin to focus in on humanity. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we're beginning to focus even further on the detrimental effects of human decision as it relates to following in the powers of sin. And it seems strange, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, descendants, Lamech, you know, all this uh, d- um, descendancy into sin that all of a sudden there's this, and this is to my second point, there's this angelic intrusion. Oh, by the way, this super random thing happened that kind of has no precursor and no example of it afterwards. Genesis right here is really dealing and outlining a basic anthropology, understanding of the human person. So this interruption by bringing in spiritual beings seems at odds with the text. Angelic intrusion is considered out of place in the sequence of episodes. Number three, um, and maybe this is the stumbling block for most of us, there's no experiential evidence nor evidence in the rest of the bible that angels can marry have sex with human beings and produce offspring right like that's not something that occurs where we're like oh there it is again There it's happening again the closest you get is a demonic possession where you can be demonized and invite dark spirits into your life but that's again uh, very different than saying that there are these kinds of genuine spiritual beings that can actually produce a kind of, what would it be, fallen angel-human hybrid. Are Are they human? Are they not human? So it's just at odds with life as we know it. Also notice that in Genesis 6, there are some parallels. There's an echo of some themes of Genesis 3 But what's being echoed isn't the sin of the supernatural being, the Nahaj, which you might expect if this is about calling out the sin of these supernatural beings. What's being called out is the sin of Eve. In Genesis 3, we, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, or it was beautiful, she took the fruit and ate it. Notice the parallel in Genesis 6. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful or attractive, so they took as their wives whomever they chose. So there is this intentional parallel, but the parallel is outlining this pattern of human sin, where we see something, we decide that it's desirous to us, and instead of doing what God wants, we just say, no, I'll take that, thank you very much. And lastly, the other reason why I think this view is a little thin is that there's no judgment against the angelic beings, right? There's a judgment against the Nahaj, pretty severe one, when that spiritual being leads humanity astray, but when these angels, we would have to infer either rape uh, or cohabitate with human beings, God's like, well, I'm gonna punish the humans in a flood, but there's nothing said of the, it doesn't actually make sense in terms of what we've already see unfold in Genesis problems with the third view the ruler's view is that again nowhere in scripture are human kings and rulers ever referred to by this hebrew word that means sons of god and so you're kind of importing some broader themes that are tied to scripture and tied to the ancient culture but that don't have a direct ability to say oh we know for sure they're actually talking about human rulers here. So where should we land? Well, I'm going to tell you where I land, and I'll commend that view to you, which is the third view, which is the rulers view. But I'm always interested in discussions for people who would try and make an argument for the other ones. But I'll only watch so many crazy YouTube videos on UFOs and giants before I'll say okay, we got to end this conversation because as we're going to find out as we move through Genesis, this is not meant to be a major debate point for the Christian life. So I'm a big fan of the ancient king's ruler's view for a few reasons. Number one, I actually think it makes the most sense in the broader context of Genesis. If you just flip open a Bible, start at Genesis 6one to 4, uncover this weird, mysterious term, sons of God and the Nephilim, you can kind of go off into all kinds of rabbit trails But if you read it in context, a lot of what is happening here makes sense as it relates to the concentric circles, the the wake that is being left um, as a result of Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin and disobedience. You see these concentric circles of sin playing out, right? You have individuals, Adam and Eve, making the individual decision, decision to reject God you begin to see the consequences on their marriage and their sense of connection. What is supposed to be a covenant is now a broken covenant. You see it play out in their family, right? The First family, Cain kills Abel. And now you're seeing it if we talk about these rulers that when population grows and when there's culture and cities being established, these rulers who should have ruled in the image of their creator bringing justice and goodness and mercy to bear on God's world, especially now that it had fallen, they kind of just give in to the momentum of selfishness, corruption, greed, injustice, sin. And the story up to the flood of Noah is supposed to be layering on these levels of, you think it's bad? Penny's gonna drop some more, it's gonna get even worse. You think it's going to stop with Cain and Abel? Nope, it's going to get worse. Now it's infected not just individuals' hearts and the family and family relationships and friendships and relationships, but society. Sin has expansive, destructive influence. And now that sin has been taken into the heart of these sons of God, these rulers who see themselves as king, it's kind of going into the next gear of exploitation where these kings take and marry whoever they want. So there's this not-so-subtle condemnation of polygamy that emerges here in Genesis 6, which becomes a theme for the rest of Genesis that wherever polygamy is practiced, disaster follows. And one of the things that gets emphasized, interestingly, in Noah's story is, I think it's, it's at least four, maybe, I think it might be five, might be five times during uh, the flood story, it's emphasized that Noah had one wife. One wife. So there's this not-so-subtle condemnation of these rulers who see themselves as God or God-like or, yes, a reflection of the God, but not the true and living God, a God made in their own image, a God that gives them power to do and take whatever they want. Something's pleasing to the eye, land, women, women, power, money, we just take it. And the Nephilim come as these descendants of these people who the nations around the Israelites said, yeah, these are mighty heroes. These are heroes of renown. These are mighty warriors. But this story, I would argue, is actually designed to teach us to see them as part of a lineage of destruction and sinfulness. Depending on your translation, you're going to get to mighty men, mighty warriors, warriors of renown. I actually think there's another allusion to another story in Genesis, which is going to pick up on this theme of uh, people who are obsessed with securing renown or fame for themselves. Does anyone know the story I'm referring to? Nimrod, the Tower of Babel, which is gonna happen in a few chapters to the right. Genesis eleven four, this city now, before it was the, before it was the descendants of these corrupt rulers who were like, we wanna be men of renown, we wanna be famous. Not renown in the sense of like, I'm celebrated for doing good things. Just, I have a reputation. <coughs> and usually it's because what I see and what I want, I take and no one can stop me. And that attitude, that impulse, eventually infects every human heart. So that when the Tower of Babylon is being built, the builders say, "Come, let us make a city for ourselves, a tower that whose top will go into the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's infuse our our names in history." Let's exalt ourselves. Let's make sure that in generations from now, what is high and celebrated and given praise and that what people genuflect before is our name. So you see this anti-creation movement, even in the Tower of Babel, that says instead of worshiping and exalting and acknowledging and giving renown to the true and living God, humanity rejects that God and says... How about me? And the first entry point into that story at the social level, I think, is Genesis 6, 1-4, where these sons of God, these self-professed rulers and authorities who aren't just heads of government, but see themselves as bridges of the divine to human beings, and therefore a very different class of person who the rules for the common folk do not apply to them. That this text is actually calling those rulers out because in so many of these cultures those kings those rulers would have been at least softly deified and their rule and their power would have been almost unquestioned because who are you to question a god and the heroes that came from these lines whether it's heroes like hercules or um gilgamesh these great heroes that the kings and rulers hold up and say, these are the kinds of heroes you should emulate. This is what it means to be mighty. This is what it means to be brave. This is what it means to be powerful. This is what it means to be a manifestation of the gods. Genesis 6, 1-4 says, no, that's what it means to be a manifestation of the corrupting power of human sin and greed and selfishness. And everything that the good creator God is. A complete bastardization of the true image of God. And so you get this very sophisticated poking of that ego-filled balloon against these cultures. So you think your heroes are great? You think your kings are great? Not only are they not divine, they're just kings, they're just people, and they actually emerge from this super sinful impulse. So they're not just not divine, they're counter divine in their ambition, and in their aspiration. They're not worthy of your respect. You should not be following them. You should be confronting them. So here's one of the tricky parts. How do you take a text like this and apply it to our lives today? We certainly don't live in a world where at least publicly our political leaders say, worship me like a God and do whatever I say. One commentator, and I think this is a good pause, uh, says, you know, when we seek to apply any passage in the Bible, we obviously ask, what kind of application should we expect? But he wants us to hit the pause button in Genesis 6, 1-4 because he says, sometimes in our zeal to want the Bible to be very practical and very relevant, we think that it always has to give us a direct course of action. Text says this, here's the lesson, do this. But he says, but sometimes... The most practical teaching of the Old Testament is simply to alert us to truths that we need to hold and to be aware of as we move through our everyday life. Those might be truths about the nature of who God is, the nature of human nature, the nature of um, sin. These big worldview pillars. And this commentator would say, this passage doesn't have any direct actions to commend to us only truths about the impact that sin has on a fallen world. Now I think there's a lot of truth there, but I think there is an important entryway into a topic that is very important for almost everybody in this room to think about, which is how we hold and use power and for what purpose. I mean this this passage if my interpretation and my reading of it is correct it's about exposing corrupt l- rulers and corrupt leaders of society and the power they have to corrupt society but if you think about it we all hold a certain amount of power socially it might be relatively small we don't hold a political office we can't make sweeping changes to laws but we hold power as a parent as a teacher as a pastor, as a civil servant, as a volunteer within an organization, as a member of the SLT, as a manager in a store. And I think one of the implicit warnings in this text is, if you do have a position of authority or power, be very careful not to become too great in your own eyes. And to recognize that that power is there for you to steward not for you to exploit for your own ends. And that means you have a responsibility, whether your influence is very meager or very much, to grow in your capacity as a leader, in whatever context you have that authority, to reflect both the character of God and to grow in your competency as a leader. Leadership isn't for your benefit. I didn't become a pastor so that you guys can make my life easier. And if that idea begins to take root in my heart, I have completely perverted and corrupted my calling as a pastor. But the same goes for you as a parent, as a grandparent, as a manager, as someone who owns their own business or employs people, as an employee. We all have influence and we should be using that to reflect God's character and learning what that means to do that whether we're in the accounting field, or we're a stay-at-home parent, or in our volunteer roles, we should be striving to lead in a way that brings renown and glory to God. Not in a way that is trying to always accrue advantages to ourselves, or even worse, we're talking like we're living for God, but our actions show that we're actually just trying to make life better for ourselves. So we harden people's hearts against God because they're like, why would I... I know like, I know three Christians at work and they're the worst people to work with because they shoot their mouth off about church, and I'm learning all this stuff and I'm in a million Bible studies and blah, blah, blah. But they're the most self-centered, self-centered, egotistical. They don't listen well. They seem to always be quick to to judge and condemn how, what power have you been given? What authority have you been given? What influence have you been given? And what does it look like for you to reflect God's way of doing things into those spheres? And the only way, um, oh, the other one. Yeah, I thought of this before the service. So here's the other one. Maybe this is a little bit more for younger people, but it's for anybody because you have these like heroes of renown, that all these other cultures were like, wow, these are our role models. This is who we should emulate. I'll just throw this out there. For those of you who are young, be very careful who you install as a hero into your life. Be very careful who you install as that's what a powerful, successful, awesome man or woman looks like. Be very careful, be very judicious in choosing who you're gonna allow to be your hero. How do we lead in a way that leads people and points people towards God? Well, you learn from the true leader. You learn from Jesus. That that would be my uh, counsel to you. And this is a passage that actually points us to Jesus. It's not immediately uh, obvious, but in a world where rulers and kings are seeking their own renown, where these tyrants claim to be sons of God who simply seize opportunity to exploit those who don't have power, who want to be revered and celebrated as high and mighty. The text is inviting us into a question. In that context, with all these sons of God and self-proclaimed larger-than-life figures, is there a true son of God? Is there a true leader who could come and instead of installing more oppression instead of enacting greater exploitation, instead of bending to the point of breaking and beyond social structures so that they can secure renown for themselves, is there a son of God that would come and do something very, very different? And the answer is, of course, yes. That in a world that is filled with violence and greed and cruelty, there actually is a true ruler and king of the world. There's a true son of God. And he comes to bring healing and redemption and forgiveness and mercy and grace and eternal life. And of course, as the biblical story plays out and we see the son of God come in Mark's gospel, his identity, everyone's kind of like, is this the Son of God? Who is this Jesus? I'm not, uh, yes, I'm not sure he's special, but maybe he's not that special. And what is the nature of his specialness? There's kind of this moment at the end of the gospel where the identity of who Jesus is becomes crystal clear. And his identity is revealed not in a moment of power and might and conquest, and a show of worldly force, but in a moment of the most sacrificial, suffering love. On the cross, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the Roman centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, a Roman centurion who would have heard stories of what it means to be a mighty man of renown, a mighty warrior, when that soldier heard Jesus' cry and saw how he died, this mighty man said, surely that man was the Son of God. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God, I'm always humbled by the ways that your word continually drives us to the feet of Jesus and drives us to the feet of the cross. And I thank you, God, that the true ruler, true king, true judge of the earth is one that isn't fueled by greed and exploitation and violence and and abuse, but is fueled by redeeming love. May that transform how we bring leadership and rulership and stewardship to the places that you've placed us, God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and ask this. Amen.